1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well,
2: good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Moppin is engineering. Today on the program, we'll talk with Professor Mark W. Smith. He's a senior fellow of law and public policy, presidential scholar at King's College. On today's 6-3 Supreme Court ruling, reinforcing Second Amendment rights of all Americans to carry We'll talk with him about that in the second hour of the program. We'll also talk with Brian Bradley, associate editor for free speech, America and business at the media research center. We'll talk about big tech censoring certain speech that doesn't uh, meet with their woke agenda. That's also in the second hour of today's program. Well, a cool start to your Thursday with Valley and Portland Metro area temperatures in the forties and low fifties. This is going to be, well, a short story because Temperatures are warming up, today, in fact, in the highs to mid-70s. Well, the warm-up really begins on Friday with highs in the mid-80s, and the weekend heat wave uh, is going to last about three days, with the hottest day here on the west side being, well, Sunday. And east of the Cascades, the hottest weather will be on Monday. Portland's going to reach into the 90s by Saturday for the first time this year, possibly into the upper 90s on Sunday, and into the 90s for the third day on Monday. Cooler weather returns for the west side, of the state on Tuesday. Beach temperatures with sunny skies could also reach 90 degrees uh, over the weekend. My guess is the beach is going to be pretty crowded over the next several days. Meanwhile, Multnomah County is preparing ahead of time for summer heat. They're expanding the cooling centers that are and will be available. They're working with the city of Portland to prepare for another summer of potentially dangerous heat. The county recently outlined its updated emergency plan in a news release, and they announced it would expand cooling center locations. You might recall about a year ago, a heat dome brought triple digit temperatures to the Pacific Northwest in late June. The county said by the end of the summer, heat was responsible for the deaths of 72 of our neighbors In Multnomah County, and all but three of those deaths resulted from extreme temperatures during the last week of June. Well, the county plans to release a final report on these uh, those deaths within the week. Uh, Based on our experience last summer and after multiple winter responses, we feel more prepared going into summer. That's a quote from the uh, Department of County Human Services. The new emergency plan focuses on early outreach, helping those most vulnerable to the heat. Starting this month, the county's health and human services program will start delivering fans, air conditioning units, and portable heat pumps to low-income clients unable to purchase supplies of their own the joint office of homeless service is also stockpiling hot weather kits that are going to be distributed by outreach teams mutual aid groups and volunteers the county is also considering using a wireless public emergency alert to warn residents of dangerous heat the county has identified 18 buildings that can be quickly converted into 24-hour cooling spaces this summer last year the county opened 24-hour cooling sitters for the first time so this will be the second year Uh, Multnomah County uses the uh, NWS heat risk map to make decisions about whether or not to open the cooling centers. Anytime the county declares a state of emergency, TriMet will shuttle riders to cooling centers and waive fares for those who cannot afford to pay. Now, help uh, for when it's hot. The latest information on cooling centers and health safety will be made available. And you can call 211 for information. Call to find cooling center locations and for transportation help getting to them. Now, you may not uh, find that you need to use them for yourself, but if you find others struggling, for example, homeless on the streets of the Portland metro area, you might want to call on their behalf. Public alerts will also be uh, issued. You can sign up to receive health and safety alerts in the Portland Vancouver area. And they're also making arrangements for the Aging and Disability Resource Connections with a 24-hour assistance program for older people with disabilities and their caregivers. That number is 503-988-3646. Again, 503-988-3646, but that information will be made widely available should the temperatures Exceed what is um, is normal here for the Pacific Northwest and other news with the 4th of July weekend coming up. It's important to know which cities in the Portland metro area allow fireworks and which don't. For example, fireworks are banned here in Portland and in Vancouver, but certain fireworks are allowed in Salem and Beaverton. The city of Gresham hasn't decided whether the firework ban is going to extend into their community. Well, regardless of where they're banned, dozens of fireworks stands will open across the region this month. The emergency manager for the city of Salem said residents should not only know where uh, they're banned, but which types are legal and which are not. He's quoted as saying fireworks that are legal are the ones that are sparklers and on the ground fireworks. Uh, Anything that leaves the ground is illegal in Oregon. Uh, Bottle rockets, Roman candles, no. No. Well, he uh, says that some tips on how to set off fireworks uh, safely uh, starts with picking a spot away from any flammable vegetation or materials. Please make sure, he says, that you have some water on hand to put out anything if it uh, does get out of hand. Also, please be aware of children. A lot of kids are injured uh, when using fireworks. Gene Marlowe, who is the owner of Mean Gene Fireworks, said that, He's expecting a lot of turnout when they open on the 28th. Last year, they were only open for a day when that dry, hot weather shut them down. Law enforcement officials said they would also like people to save 911 calls for emergencies only and not from annoyance when your neighbors firing off. Well, I guess in the Portland metro area, sparklers. That's about the extent of it. Well, President Biden on Wednesday announced he was calling on Congress. To suspend the federal gas and diesel tax for a period of three months. The White House said that the president would also call on states to suspend their own gas taxes or provide similar relief. Well, Oregon Governor Kate Brown and Washington Governor Jay Inslee say not so much. Both indicated that they would not be putting a pause on the local state fuel taxes. In a statement, Governor Brown's office said Governor Brown understands the impact that the rising cost of gas is having on working families and businesses alike. However, with gas prices having jumped by several dollars per gallon over the last several months, it's unlikely that Oregonians would see significant savings at the pump under this latest proposal. While well, suspending federal and state gas taxes would also require bipartisan legislation, a uh, legislative action to enact and to address the resulting revenue impact at a time When we're working on critical transportation projects funded by the Highway Trust Fund. The governor absolutely believes we should continue to make targeted investments to help Oregonians feel the impacts of rising cost of living the most. Investments such as uh, direct payments that are going out to approximately 240,000 working families this week. And the $400 million investment we're making in housing and the $100 million investment we're making in child care. Well, not exactly a suspension of the gas tax. Washington Governor Inslee's office also said pausing the gas provides yet another opportunity for oil companies to pocket more profit while significantly hindering our ability to put people to work, fixing and building roads and bridges. So there you have it. Despite the Democrat governor, the Democrat governors of both, I should say, president, the Democrat governors of Oregon and Washington say no thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few
1: moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll talk about the Supreme Court decision, six to three ruling to reinforce the Second Amendment right for all Americans, particularly in New York, to carry. We'll also talk with Brian Bradley, associate editor for Free Speech America and Business at the Media Research Center on censorship among big tech uh, companies. President Trump asked Sidney Powell to be a special counsel to investigate the election fraud. And he asked, um, well, let's start from the beginning. Today's uh, hearings on the by the January 6th committee uh, were held covering a number of issues, which I have listed here a bit backwards. But I want to try to provide some of what was covered. The members um, got personal security details because apparently threats are escalating for members. His House committee investigating the January 6th storming of the Capitol are likely to receive security details as reporting threats against them have increased. The committee has held four hearings detailing former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Representative uh, Adam Kinzinger, a Republican from Illinois, said he discovered a letter addressed to his wife that threatened to murder him, his wife and their three month old um, uh, baby this weekend. It always concerns uh, concerns me. For some members, it's relatively new experience. For other members, it's an old experience. Jamie Raskin from Maryland said he serves on the committee, uh, saying on Wednesday, so we have a spectrum on the committee, but we are all committed to making sure that everybody involved in this process is secure. So that was announced today. Also, federal agents searched the home of former Department of Justice official Jeffrey Clark. Authorities searched his uh, home. He was the uh, DOJ official a name that will pop up during the January 6th committee and did today. An official with the U.S. Army's office in D.C. confirms that there was law enforcement activity in the vicinity of his Virginia residence, but wouldn't say more. The attorney, the U.S. attorney's office rather in D.C. had no comment reporting uh, on this. The subject, others suggested that he was uh, sent outside of his home in pajamas while they searched his residence. Well, the committee gavels uh, in its sixth total hearing to highlight the president's pressure on the Department of Justice. Uh, The um, meeting today was the fifth hearing in two weeks as lawmakers aimed to show the former president and his allies were responsible for the attack on the Capitol. The hearing featured witnesses, including former acting attorney general Jeff Rosen, former acting deputy attorney general Richard Donoghue and former assistant attorney general from the Office of Legal Counsel Stephen Engel. All covered in today's hearing. Cheney, Thomas uh, Thompson, rather Kinzinger, warned of consequences. If the president's Department of Justice pressured the campaign, if it had succeeded, that was part of the hearing today. And former Attorney General uh, Bill Barr said in a deposition with the January 6th committee that if he did not preempt the president's claim of election fraud in 2020, President Biden might never have taken office. In video played by the um, committee, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, the Republican, one of two, uh, at the hearing Thursday, Barr answered a question about why he took the unusual step of proactively investigating election fraud. And he responded by saying, I think the fact that I put myself in the position that I Could say that we had looked at this and didn't think that was uh, that there was fraud was really important to moving things forward. I sort of shudder to think what the situation would have been if the position of the department was um, we uh, weren't even looking at this until after Biden's in office. He added, I'm not sure we would have had the transition. He went on to say again, talking about the January 6th committee. Meanwhile, former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen on Thursday Uh, said that the former president repeatedly contacted him about his efforts to overturn the 2020 election on a nearly daily basis in late December and early January. Uh, The common element of this, of all of this, was the president expressing his dissatisfaction that the Justice Department, in his view, had not done enough To investigate election fraud, Rosen said of his calls and meetings with the former president. He said that uh, Trump asked about appointing a special counsel, asked if Rosen could meet with Judy, Rudy Giuliani, hold a press conference, send a letter to state legislators and more. I will say that the Justice Department declined all of these requests because we didn't think there were appropriate based on the facts and the law. Jeffrey Clark clung to false election claims. uh, The hearing pointed out, pressed To send Georgia a letter, Donoghue says the former acting deputy attorney general Richard Donoghue said in a long discussion with the committee on Thursday that former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark clung to false claims that the election was stolen despite the fact they were debunked. Clark was one of the people behind an effort to get the Justice Department to send a letter to state legislatures, Georgia specifically, saying the state lawmakers could appoint alternative slates of electors in an effort to keep former President Donald Trump in office. Donoghue said he and the former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen Um, rejected it out of hand and that it was not based on facts. Donoghue then described a meeting between the three men in which Rosen refused to let the issue go. He doubled down and said, well, okay, so there's no foreign interference. I still think are enough allegations out there that we should go ahead and send this letter. Donoghue said, which uh, shocked me even more than the initial one, because uh, you would think after a couple of days of looking at this, he like we Uh, would have come to the same conclusion that it was completely unfounded. Also in the committee hearing, uh, former President Donald Trump said he planned to make his attorney, um, Sidney Powell, a special counsel to investigate false claims that the presidential election was stolen. Uh, The January 6th committee reported on uh, Thursday in today's hearing, he asked me to be a special counsel to address the election issue and to collect evidence, Powell said, In audio played by Representative Kinzinger, the Republican on the committee who said the offer was made on the 18th of December, he was extremely frustrated with the lack of, I would call it, law enforcement by any of the government agencies that are supposed to act to protect the rule of law. And our republic, Powell said, he never became a special counsel, but she was involved in discussions with the former president as he sought to overturn the 2020 election. Finally, former uh, President Trump said he planned to make his attorney, Sidney Powell, a special counsel to investigate the false claims. And the hearings addressed that as well. Meanwhile, federal authorities, as I mentioned, searched the home of Jeffrey Clark, the former Justice Department official that the administration... With the uh, Trump administration, an official with the attorney's office, U.S. attorney's office in D.C., confirmed that there was law enforcement activity in the vicinity and Virginia, Virginia at the residence, but wouldn't say more. Clark served as acting assistant attorney general for the civil division during the uh, Final months of the Trump administration and colleagues have testified he was a true believer that the 2020 election had been stolen, according to NBC News. Clark reportedly flouted the Department of Justice policy and met directly with the White House regarding election uh, conspiracies rather than going through the proper channels. It's even more evident in hindsight, but at the time, I did think he's meeting with the president and now he wants to be briefed by the director of national intelligence, or thermostats, or on thermostats. Just what is going on here with Jeff Clark, former Trump appointed acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen told the Senate Judiciary Committee last week. We did learn that the January 6th committee uh, announced yesterday that the hearing schedule will continue into the month of June. The reason newly obtained evidence, including footage from British filmmaker Alex Holder, who scheduled to speak to the committee and did today, per political, Thompson. Uh, called the footage he had seen important but declined to elaborate. So this uh, trial will continue into the month of July. Well, the Supreme Court ruled in a six to three decision Thursday that a defendant whose written statement admitting to sexual assault, despite not being read his Miranda warnings, could bring a claim against the officer, or rather cannot bring a claim against the officer, even when the statement was used against him in court. The Miranda warnings, which include telling the suspect that they have a right to remain silent, are customarily recited upon arrest or before statements are given. The warnings come from the Supreme Court case Miranda versus Arizona. Miranda itself was clear on this point. Miranda did not hold this, uh, that a violation of the rules it established necessarily constitute a Fifth Amendment violation, and it's difficult to see how it could have held otherwise. That's a quote from Justice Samuel Alito writing in the court opinion in which he extensively referenced the Miranda decision. Instead, it claimed only that those rules were needed to safeguard that right during custodial interrogation. He later added, well, the um, uh, defendant in this case was a nursing assistant at a hospital where he was accused of sexually assaulting a patient. He wasn't advised of Miranda warnings and later after questioning wrote a statement in which he confessed and apologized for his Actions. Well, today is the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the federal law enacted in 1972 to ensure women and girls are given opportunities to achieve their dreams through education, sports, and scholarships. Prior to 1972, there were virtually no college scholarships available for women to play sports. Women were fortunate if they even had a sports team at their schools. They often had no locker rooms, low quality uniforms, old training equipment, no travel stipends, absurd practice uh, scheduled, and no championship opportunities. It's no surprise that only one out of every 27 girls played sports. Now, I benefited from Title IX as I attended the University of Oregon two years into this title. I received a scholarship. Well, today, two in five girls play sports. Over 100,000 women play college sports and about three million play high school sports. These opportunities are in large part due to Title IX. Now, 50 years later, women and girls are fighting for equal access to athletic opportunities again, just as they were when Joe Biden first ran for Senate. Girls across the nation have been forced to give up their places on winners' podiums to males who identify as females. And that debate Continues even after and on the fiftieth anniversary of Title IX. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back, continuing our march
1: through the news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court today ruled that New York's proper cause requirement to obtain a concealed carry license is unconstitutional as it violates ordinary citizens' Second Amendment rights. The court voted 6-3 to three to strike down the New York law, which has been in place since 1913, and required that people show a special need to obtain a license to carry a concealed handgun outside the home. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin that the Second Amendment protests the, uh, uh, protects rather, the right of individuals to carry a gun outside the home, adding that the state's proper cause requirement violates the Fourth Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. The three liberal justices dissented. We're going to talk in the five o'clock hour, in fact, right at the top of the hour with Professor Mark W. Smith on that decision, what it means and what it um, um, what will change as a result of this decision. That's coming up right at the top of the next hour. President Biden's energy secretary shifted the blame for the out of control gas crisis and hinted at a drastic move to address it. Calling it a bridge too far, former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos sounded off on the Biden administration's rumored Title IX changes. The proposed Title IX changes include redefining the word sex to mean gender and gender identity. The Uvalde School District is taking action against the police chief after condemning shooting, uh, the shooting response uh, with the new res- revelations. And in a sad case of misspent funds, the EPA spent millions from the president's COVID-19 bill on climate change programs, EV ride shares and pruning workshops. Saying he has no crystal ball, a Los Angeles DA, George Gascone, he brushed off concerns from the mother of a slain police officer. Gascon is facing a likely recall. The current head of the pack, Governor DeSantis, edged former President Donald Trump in New Hampshire, the home of the first presidential primary. Defending his Putin price hike, President Biden suggests Republicans who criticize him for high gas prices would have Putin roll over Ukraine, conflating the two. Senator Robert Menendez pressed federal Fed chair Jerome Powell on diversity among bank presidents and gets slammed on Twitter. Non-negotiable, Senator Blackburn won't back a bipartisan gun safety bill saying the Second Amendment is not negotiable. Not-so-balanced reporting, CNN, NBC, and MSNBC journalists say Republicans can't be covered equally with Democrats. They said the quiet part out loud. In a mass business exodus, 2.0, Caterpillar, Boeing, Raytheon revived the high-tax state Exodus with moves to states with fewer and lower taxes and business friendly policies. Senator Tom Cotton and Representative Jim Banks plan to introduce a bill allowing children to sue doctors for damages related to gender transition surgery. National Review reports Senator Tom Cotton and the Republican study group, a House caucus led by Representative Jim Banks, announced on Wednesday that they would introduce the Protecting Minors from Medical Malpractice Act in both chambers of Congress this session. The bill responds to growing concerns over the use of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgical procedures to alter minors' physiological and physical Uh, appearance. Once signed into law, the bill would allow victims and legal guardians to sue surgeons who perform gender transition surgeries on minors or doctors who prescribe them hormone treatments up to 30 years after the subjects reach the age of majority. Other provisions would clarify that federal uh, law cannot be construed to force medical practitioners to offer such procedures and prevent federal health funds from going to states that force medical practitioners to perform gender transition procedures." Cotton told Fox News Digital in a statement that gender transition procedures aren't safe or appropriate for children. Unfortunately, radical doctors in the United States perform dangerous experimental and even sterilizing gender transition procedures on young kids who cannot even provide informed consent. He continued, our bill allows children who grow up to regret these procedures to sue for damages. Any doctor who performs these irresponsible procedures on kids should pay. Bipartisan gun legislation has advanced in the Senate. Again, the National Review reports that the Senate voted Tuesday night to take up bipartisan legislation designed to address the spate of mass shootings that have rocked the country in recent weeks. The bill, which advanced on a 64 to 34 vote, would direct federal funding to states to implement red flag laws and bolster mental health and school safety programs. Additionally, the bill would mandate increased background checks for gun buyers aged 18 to 21, giving the FBI up to 10 days to review the mental health and criminal records of young gun buyers. If uh, if the Senate breaks a filibuster, the bill would then be put up for a final passage vote. From there, the House would have uh, have to vote on the legislation before it can land on the president's desk. The measure also creates penalties for straw purchases of fire gums, requires uh, more gun sellers to register as federally licensed firearm dealers, and closes the so-called boyfriend loophole by prohibiting gun access for people convicted of domestic abuse against an inmate partner. Republicans and independents fear the government will abuse red flag laws. Center Square reports that the majority of Republican and independent voters think red flag gun laws that allow judges to confiscate individuals' firearms can be abused for political reasons, according to a new poll. Convention of States Action, along with the Trafalgar Group, Released polling data Wednesday that shows that 72.2 percent of Republicans and 52.3 percent of independents believe that red flag gun control laws that are designed to temporarily take guns away from individuals have the potential to be abused by local authorities and government officials to disarm their political opponents and or citizens who disagree with them. Only 16.4 percent of Democrats agreed. Overall, 46.7 percent of all surveyed said that there was potential for abuse, while 31 percent said there was uh, no potential for abuse of the law. The poll is timely since the U.S. Senate voted late Tuesday to advance a round of gun control measures that included support from 14 Republicans. It's not clear if those Republicans will uh, support the legislation, but did support moving it forward to be debated and then ultimately voted on national association of uh, for gun rights said, would you look at that nine out of 11 top highest NRA funded U S senators voted for selling out your gun rights to the Democrats end quote. That was posted on Twitter. Democrat, Andrew Gillum, Charged has been charged with 21 counts of fraud, conspiracy, and making false statements during his 2018 gubernatorial race. NBC reports that Adam Gilliam, the once-rising Florida Democratic star who narrowly lost the 2018 governor's race to Ron DeSantis, was hit with a 21-count federal indictment Wednesday for wired fraud, related conspiracy charges, and making false statements. The former Tallahassee mayor was charged, along with his uh, mentor, Sharon Letman hicks for fraudulently uh, fundraising from various entities between 2016 to 2019, according to a Department of Justice press release. The Justice Department said the two allegedly diverted some of the money to a company controlled by Letterman Hicks, who fraudulently disguised the funds as payroll payments to Gilliam. Uh, If uh, found guilty, he faces up to five years in prison for making false statements, 20 years in prison for conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and 20 years in prison for charge for wire fraud. President Biden is asking Congress to suspend the gas tax for three months. The move is seen as mostly unpopular by both parties. CNN reports that President Joe Biden on Wednesday called on Congress to suspend federal gasoline and diesel taxes until the end of September, framing the move as necessary to provide relief to American consumers, but itself not enough to resolve the problem of surging energy prices. By suspending the 18 cent per gallon federal gas tax for the next 90 days, we can bring down the price of gas and give families just a little bit of relief, the president said in a speech from the White House. I fully understand that a gas tax holiday alone is not going to fix the problem, but it will provide families some immediate relief, the president said, just a little bit of breathing room as we continue working to bring down prices for the long haul, filling a a tank full would save about on average from 4 to 5 dollars per effort. President Biden's uh, continuing to blame Russian President Vladimir Putin for the hike in gas prices, while the Fed chair Jerome Powell says prices were rising before the invasion, mixed messages from the administration's con- administration continues. Town Hall points out that Biden uh, to, com- to companies that run gas pumps. This is a time of war, global peril, Ukraine. These are not normal times. Bring down the prices you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you are paying for the product. Do it now. Do it today. But Katie Pavlich points out on Town Hall, testifying in front of the Senate Banking Committee Wednesday, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell cut down the Biden administration's main argument and explanation for inflation. The Putin's price hike narrative is used by administration officials multiple times per day and has been adopted by Democratic allies on Capitol Hill. The data, however, tells a different story. Inflation is a result of Biden's one point nine trillion dollar America Rescue Plan, which was passed solely by Democrats in early 2021. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with Professor Mark W. Smith, Senior Fellow of Law and Public Policy and Presidential Scholarship at King's College on today's 6-3 Supreme Court ruling, reinforcing Second Amendment rights for all Americans to carry. We'll also talk with Brian Bradley, Associate Editor for Free Speech America and Business at the Media Research Center on censoring... And some, well, social media users... That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. A 5.9 magnitude earthquake in Afghanistan kills 1,000 and counting. A powerful earthquake struck a rural mountainous region of eastern Afghanistan early yesterday, killing 1,000, injuring 1,500 more in one of the deadliest quakes in decades, the state-run news agency reported. Officials warned that the already grim toll may still rise. Information remained scarce on the magnitude 6.1 tremor. But uh, near the Pakistani border, but quakes of that strength can cause serious damage in an area where homes and other buildings are poorly constructed and landslides are common. Experts put the depth of uh, uh, at just 10 kilometers, six miles, another factor that could lead to severe destruction. Early presidential polling in New Hampshire, Florida Governor DeSantis leads Donald Trump by a tight margin public opinion survey in New Hampshire, the state that for a century has held the first primary in presidential race, indicates that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has a razor-thin margin over former President Donald Trump, who hasn't announced he plans to run, but in a hypothetical 2024 GOP primary matchup. According to polling numbers released on Wednesday by the University of New Hampshire's Survey Center, 39 percent of likely Republican primary voters in the Granite State would support the first term Florida governor with 37 percent backing the former president. Respondents were provided a list of potential contenders for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, and DeSantis' margin was well within the survey sampling error. Is Putin's price hike real? Well, earlier this month, a liquefied natural gas plant in Guatana Island, Texas, experienced a damaging explosion that had an immediate impact on U.S. natural gas exports to Europe, driving up energy prices. And while Joe Biden and his administration insist that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is primarily responsible for America's skyrocketing gas prices, Putin may indeed be legitimately blamed for contributing, but not in the way the president claims. According to recent reports, the explosion at the natural gas plant known as Freeport LNG may have been intentional. A targeted operation conducted by a cyber unit connected to Russian military intelligence service, GRU. The Washington Examiner reports that U.S. LNG exports have long been a priority concern for Russia, viewed by Russian President Vladimir Putin as a means for the United States to undercut Russia's domination of the European gas market. Freeport LNG is one of several such plants currently operating in the U.S., and the explosion has completely shut down the plant for at least three months and prevented a return to full operational capabilities for the rest of the year. Meanwhile, in Europe, the German uh, German government has acknowledged that the country is in the midst of a fuel crisis brought on by Russia as it diminishes its deliveries. The reduction in gas supplies is an economic attack on us by Putin. Germany's minister of the economy uh, argued, we will defend ourselves against this, but our country is going to have to go down a stony path now. Well, if Putin is responsible for the attack, a clear escalation against the U.S., How will the Biden administration respond? For whatever it's worth, he's already warned the Russian strongman against attacking our infrastructure. The question now is whether or not he just did. Democrats call on Google to shadow ban pro-life advocacy. Democrats from both chambers of Congress recently called on Google to effectively censor pro-life content online via shadow banning. Senator Mark Warner and Representative Elisa Slotkin Along with 19 other Democrat lawmakers want the tech giant to limit the appearance of pro-life search results and add user friendly disclaimers to ensure women seeking health care services are directed to the basic information they request. The Democrats cite the British based censorship advocacy group Center for Countering Digital Hate and making their dubious argument to suppress online free speech. So hate is now defined as anything that runs counter to the prevailing view within one side of the political spectrum or continuum. CCDH produced a study logging Google searches for abortion clinics near me that supposedly found a significant quantity of anti-abortion fake clinics in the results. The study claimed that 11% of results produced fake clinics that offered free pregnancy tests, abortion counseling, pre-abortion screening, abortion education, post-abortion care, and after-abortion help. In other words, these fake clinics were delineated as uh, such by Planned Parenthood, the nation's number one abortion provider. This is like uh, after uh, like asking a criminal to define what constitutes a crime. Well, Democrat lawmakers want to silence the online voice of the opposition as they ridiculously contended that CCDH's finding undermines the integrity of Google's search results. What makes this even more devious is the fact that Google is already heavily engaged in suppressing search results that favor and promote conservative perspectives. Who are the real fascists? The question is being asked. Well, in a Second Amendment win, the Supreme Court struck the New York concealed carry restriction. We'll talk more about that at the top of the hour. And House GOP leadership has rejected the Senate gun bill as conservatives revolt over Second Amendment restrictions. The Biden administration plans to force schools to adopt radical gender policies or else. And former Florida gubernatorial candidate. Andrew Gillum has been uh, indicted on conspiracy and wire fraud charges. The cost of your 4th of July cookout just went up 17 percent thanks to inflation. And just 11 percent of Americans blame Russian President Vladimir Putin for high energy prices. Well, Disney's Strange World, its uh, latest animated film, will include an openly gay teen romance. Meanwhile, Disney's stock has tumbled nearly 50 percent as audiences look elsewhere. The Louisiana governor signed a bill banning abortions there, and Cleveland's Officer of the Year praised Hitler and joined a Facebook group honoring Osama bin Laden. Rather odd. Well, on this day in history, 1836, Congress approves the Deposit Act, which contains a provision for turning over surplus federal revenue to the states. 1868, Christopher Latham Scholes received a patent for his typewriter featuring the QWERTY keyboard. It is the first commercially successful typewriter. 1938, the Civil Aeronautics Authority is established. 1947, the Senate joins the House in overriding President Harry S. Truman's veto of the Taft-Hartley Act, designed to limit the power of organized labor. 1969, Warren E. Berger is sworn in as Chief Justice of the United States by the man he succeeds, Earl Warren. 1972, President Nixon signs Title IX, barring discrimination on the basis of sex, for any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. 1972, President Richard Nixon and White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman discuss using the CIA to obstruct the FBI's Watergate investigation. Revelation of the tape recording of this conversation would spark Nixon's resignation two years later. 1985, all 329 people aboard an Air India Boeing 747 were killed when the plane crashed into the Atlantic Ocean near Ireland because of a bomb authorities believe was planted by Sikh separatists. 1988, James E. Hansen, a climatologist at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, tells a Senate panel that global warming on Earth caused by greenhouse gas effect is a reality. 1992, John Gotti, convicted of racketeering charges, is sentenced in New York to life in prison. 1995, Dr. Jonas Salk, the medical pioneer who developed the first vaccine to halt the crippling rampage of polio, dies in L.A. in, uh, sorry, La Jolla, California, uh, at age 80. 2010, President Obama fires General Stan Allen McChrystal after his controversial comments appeared in a Rolling Stone article. 2016, the United Kingdom votes to leave the European Union. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, 12 boys and their soccer coach began exploring a cave in Thailand, Thailand rather, before getting trapped, leading to a widely publicized rescue effort. I get um, claustrophobia just thinking about uh, that very rescue that took place uh, at that time. Well, coming up in the next hour of uh, today's program, we're going to talk with Professor Mark Smith Senior Fellow of Law and Public Policy and Presidential Scholar uh, about today's uh, Supreme Court decision regarding the right to carry a weapon, uh, addressing the law in New York. And we'll talk with Brian Bradley, Associate Editor for Free Speech America and Business at the Media Research Center on free speech and efforts by big tech to censor certain uh, kinds of speech. So we'll get into that in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Brian Bradley, associate editor for Free Speech America and business at the Media Research Center. We're going to talk about efforts to censor speech that is considered uh, not woke enough with regard to sexuality. That's coming up. Later this hour. Well, in New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the Supreme Court affirmed that gun rights are due the same protection as all other constitutional rights. Well, this is not only the most important Second Amendment ruling since D.C. versus Heller. It is potentially the most important Second Amendment ruling in American history. The question at hand in Bruin was rather straightforward. Can the state of New York require that applicants for gun carry permits demonstrate a special need for self-protection, distinguishable from that of the general community? Or is New York obliged by the Constitution to offer a shall-issue regime, uh, of the sh- the sort that 43 of the four- other 49 states have adopted. Well, by a 6-3 vote, the justices decided that the latter approach is required. Clarence Thomas's majority opinion concluded authorities must issue concealed carry licenses whenever applicants satisfy certain threshold requirements without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on perceived lack of need or suitability. Well, joining us to talk about that, Uh, not only what the decision uh, says, but what it might mean moving forward is Professor Mark W. Smith. He's a presidential scholar and a senior fellow in law and public policy at the King's College. Professor Smith is also a visiting fellow in pharmaceutical public policy and law in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Oxford. He is the former adjunct professor of law at the University of Kansas School of Law where he researched and taught a course on constitutional law, the Second Amendment, and related topics. He joined us today to talk about the Supreme Court's Second Amendment decision released earlier today. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on, Jordine. It's a very exciting day for anyone that supports the Constitution and the United States. It's great to see uh, we have a Supreme Court that's willing to follow the law wherever it may take them. And uh, that is a breath of fresh air compared to what we've seen in the last few decades.
2: Well, let's go back and talk about the case that uh, ultimately resulted in this decision, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. The The question was whether or not um, a, a gun carry permit required uh, that officials in New York deem the individual worthy of or, ha- or having had a sufficient reason for a, a carry permit. Can you g- elaborate on that just a bit?
3: Sure. So in the United States, you have 43 states that say that you, you know, we respect the right to carry a gun. So Either you as long as you're a law abiding citizen and you're not a prohibited person under federal law, meaning you're a felon or something like that, uh, then is once you meet an objective criteria, you are allowed to carry a handgun loaded. Uh, in public to defend yourself, your family, and your community. That's the rule in 43 states right now. But there are these other outlier states, which include some of the big ones like New York, California, New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts, Hawaii, where they have what's called a May issue permitting scene. What that means is the only way you are allowed to carry a handgun in public is if you go to the government, the state government, and you say, mother, may I please carry a gun? And they will allow you to carry a gun if they think you are special. If you are just an ordinary person that wants to protect yourself and your family using a firearm in public, they're like, that's not good enough. You need to have a special reason. A special reason might be you're a celebrity. A special reason might be you're a politician and risk of life because of that. Uh, a special reason might be that you're a victim of a stalker or something like that. But you have to demonstrate a special need historically in these states to have a carry permit to be allowed to carry gun in public. This Supreme Court decision today, Nice versus Bruin, said that those six states that have these may-issue permitting schemes where you have to beg the state for permission to carry a gun is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. It, because it's a constitutional right, you don't have to beg the state to exercise your right. You have that right to exercise it, and the state cannot stand in the way.
2: Now, Clarence Thomas went on to say that while there is nothing illegal about America's existing state-level permitting systems, those systems may not be mere smokescreens for outright prohibition, unequal protection, or unacceptable delay. We do not rule out. So the the decision wasn't saying that you can't uh, impose a, a, a system in which if you're a felon, you can't have a gun, that there are certain standards that apply to everyone. But they cannot randomly, as you've described, deprive Americans of the right to uh, to carry a weapon um, if they don't have an imminent threat against them.
3: That's right. The presumption is in a free society that you are allowed to do it unless it's banned. Because we have the Second Amendment that guarantees our right to keep and bear arms, recognizing the pre-existing human right of self-defense, we are allowed to exercise that right until we have forfeited that right by virtue of bad behavior, meaning you've committed a felony and have lost your gun rights along those lines. Uh, but yeah, and, C- and Justice Thomas in today's decision made it very clear that the presumption of the United States is that you have the right to carry a gun, and they made it very clear, and I should mention this is important, Georgine, it's a 6-3 decision, and all six justices made it clear, and they, even though there was a couple concurrences, they all agreed with this one critical point. that. That the burden of proof to show that a gun control law is constitutional lies heavily, heavily with the state, with the government, as opposed to the way the cases have been over the last decade, which is basically the people suing on behalf of gun rights really bore the burden to show that they had a right to have a gun. But now they've shifted the burden dramatically to the state to say you have to come up with a historical basis to show that your gun prohibition, your gun restriction um is somehow Based in American history, and it's some sort of traditional rule that we've seen for 200 years. And if you can't do that, then we're not going to really uphold that gun control law going forward because it's unconstitutional. Because there's a fundamental right here. And again, the Second Amendment is a fundamental right. Uh, it's not just any right, it's a fundamental right on par with the First Amendment, the right to religion uh, and free speech, and all these things. So um, I think it's a very big win for anyone that supports the right to keep and bear arms today.
2: Yeah. Again, the majority um, determined that. Not- Nothing in the Second Amendment's text draws a home public distinction with respect to the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, the, the majority also examined the relevant history. The state of New York offered up three objections uh, to the claim that broad gun carry rights have a long historical pedigree in the United States, but they did not stand up to Supreme Court scrutiny.
3: Yes, that's right. The, the, the anti-gun community has spent a lot of money and resources trying to develop historical arguments as to why the second amendment's text does not mean what it says. And of course the right to keep arms means you have the right to possess them, Georgine. And the right to bear arms means you have the right to carry them. Um, and some of the arguments they came up with is they relied on this English statute, believe it or not, called the Statute of Northampton, which was enacted. Ready for this? I think it was enacted 200 years before the birth of William Shakespeare. And their argument was, well, that was part of English law, and there was restrictions on the right to carry, and therefore that carried over into the new world here in the United States. The Supreme Court rejected that argument. They also said that there were laws in you know in the antebellum South in a couple states that had banned that had banned concealed carry in a couple states. That is actually true, Georgine. That it, before the Civil War, there was a few Southern states that had banned concealed carry of handguns. But what the anti-gunners conveniently ignored, and the Supreme Court pointed out, is in all of those states they were you were allowed to carry openly your handgun or your firearm. So yes, you couldn't carry it concealed. They thought that was ungentlemanly, but that but you were allowed to still carry your gun openly to protect yourself. So you weren't being disarmed. They were just regulating the way you did it. And the Supreme Court again saw. That argument. So, yes, the Supreme Court looked very carefully at these historic arguments and concluded that at the end of the day, we are an American gun culture, and the right to carry arms is not just guaranteed by the text of the Second Amendment, but also by the related history of our uh, gun rights and uh, our American experience. After all, the American Revolution started on the green of Lexington and Concord, and last I checked, that was outdoors. <laughs>
2: We're going to continue our conversation for a few more moments, but we do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Professor Mark W. Smith, Senior Fellow of Law and Public Policy, Presidential Scholar at King's College. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a decisive uh, six to three ruling, Uh, By the Supreme Court, they offered a bold reaffirmation of the Second Amendment rights of Americans and will likely serve, as my next guest puts it, as a precursor to additional gun rights cases to go before the Supreme Court. The days of forcing citizens to ask local officials, Mother, may I have permission to defend myself or protect my family, are gone. Uh, We are continuing our, our conversation with Professor Mark W. Smith, presidential scholar and a senior fellow in law and public policy at King's College. Well, predictably, President uh, Biden said that he was deeply disappointed with the Supreme Court gun decision. Uh, his statement came minutes after um, uh, the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, uh, also condemned the ruling, calling it a dark day for New York. And again, predictably, the media, of course, responded hysterically to the decision in Bruin. CNN's chief legal analyst, Jeffrey tubin he was uh, maybe the most egregious as he claimed that the ruling showed that the court wanted to demolish all regulations and even went so far as to suggest that we need to abolish the Supreme Court altogether. Your response to their repudiation of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision?
3: Well, obviously, it's quite silly, right? Because if you actually read the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, you have in the Second Amendment, again, the Bill of Rights being individual rights, uh, a right to keep in their arms. It's actually in the text of the Constitution that many of these same media commentators are upset that this Supreme Court may, we don't know, but may conclude that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution, because last I read the Constitution, I don't see the word abortion or anything that seems to allude to that in there. And yet we have a right to keep and bear arms actually in there. So I find it perplexing how a lot of these commentators think that there's a fundamental right to have an abortion, and yet somehow uh, they manage to skip over what's in the text. So obviously we expect this uh, hyperbole. Bear in mind, Georgine, that these the, the, the six states are the media centers—New York and California and New Jersey. So they hyperventilate about, "Oh my God, our citizens are going to be able to arm themselves." They conveniently ignore the fact that in the vast bulk of the United States, 43 states, you have just a right to carry a gun, either through a shall-issue or permitless carry system. So they simply ignore the fact that this really this this decision is actually not a huge decision in certain respects. In many respects, it's really an incremental decision that's really just applying to six of the fifty states because the rest of the states already honor the right to keep and bear arms. So it's really just getting these outlier states into line uh with the rest of the country that they never should have left. But they did, and now the Supreme Court is basically saying, look. You know, you have it in the text of the Constitution. You have to respect it, and we're going to enforce it going forward.
2: Well, perhaps you and I just can't see that penumbra, that cloud in which there are certain rights and prohibitions that we just cannot perceive that the media, the president, and uh, previous Supreme Court justices seem to recognize with regard to abortion. Justice Thomas made it pretty clear in the decision that the plain reading of the Second Amendment shows that American citizens have the right to bear arms as well as to keep them so this decision will stand your thoughts on how this might impact future decisions with regard to uh, to gun rights moving forward and do you expect it'll have any impact on uh, the uh, the machinations that are going on in congress right now with regard to addressing um, gun use following recent events
3: well first of all i think that the decision will be very positive for gun rights moving forward one of the things that has not been reported heavily Uh, is this case talks about what's called the common use or the common possession test for arms. And what that means is, if you read the Second Amendment, it talks to you have the right to keep and bear arms. But what is an arm? Well, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that, arms, of course, is something that you use either for offensive or defensive purposes. And then they point out that the arms that are protected in the United States today are those arms that are commonly possessed by Americans for lawful purposes, which is a standard they set forth in Heller and McDonald, and in the case called Caetano. The reason why this is so important that they reaffirm this today is the next really the next man up is either a so-called assault weapon bands, which are AR-15 bands in certain States or so-called large capacity magazine bands, which again, are really standard capacity magazines. Uh, but those are really the next two cases on the docket for the Supreme court dealing with the second amendment. And since the Supreme court has reaffirmed this common possession test, we know right now that tens, tens of millions of Americans own both AR-15s and they own, you know, well over a hundred million magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. So, under this common possession test re articulated, reaffirmed today by the Supreme Court, it seems to me that if they do take an AR 15 ban case or a magazine case, uh, those laws likely would be struck down by virtue of what the court said today.
2: Well, I, uh, I will look forward to seeing what comes down the pike next and what comes out of Washington in the days ahead. There seems to be deep division on the course uh, to move forward. And I appreciate so much you're taking the time to talk with us. I really do.
3: Oh, anytime. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much. Once again, Professor Mark W. Smith is a Senior Fellow of Law and Public Policy, Presidential Scholar at King's College on today's 6-3 Supreme Court ruling reinforcing Second Amendment rights for all Americans. Well, summing up, the uh, Justice uh, Thomas approach submitted that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct and to justify a firearm regulation that government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation historical tradition of firearm regulation. In doing so, he clarified many of Heller's loose ends, and he took a great stride toward ensuring that the um, recalcitrant lower court judges were unable to wiggle out of uh, its terms, writing that since Heller and McDonald, Thomas noted, the courts of appeals have developed a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with means-end scrutiny. The court rejects the two-part approach as having one step too many. Heller, Thomas confirmed, did not invoke any means-end tests such as strict or intermediate scrutiny, and it expressly rejected any interest balancing inquiry akin to uh, intermediate scrutiny. Message going forward, those courts must stop playing games. So says the Supreme Court and the decision they issued today. Well, in other news, stories of resilience and hope emerge even in the darkest times. In its 1973 decision, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court created and imposed a policy for killing babies in the womb, one of the most extreme in the world, which the American people never chose for themselves. A large and consistent majority of Americans, however, has not been duped by 50 years of unrelenting Misdirection and spin, the latest polling ads, evidence that the Uh, That ought to encourage and guide the pro-life movement should the Supreme Court correct its error and overrule Roe with its expected decision in Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. Abortion advocates um, aided and abetted by the mainstream media go to great lengths to keep us from believing our eyes or using common sense or looking at science for that matter. The issue, they say, is not this particular choice, but choice itself, even though anyone who is ordered from a menu or registered for college classes is pro-choice. Choice. Well, more recently, the propaganda is that killing babies is health care. Activists even use phrases such as abortion care as if abortion is a thing to be protected and cared for. A photo of members of the um, House Pro-Choice Caucus features signs that say liberate abortion and abortion is essential. Even the Supreme Court didn't go that far. Well, the pregnant woman cannot be isolated in her privacy, wrote Justice Harry Blackmun in his majority opinion in Roe. Because abortion eliminates children in the womb well, the seven justices in the row majority, however, apparently forgot that each of them had been just that it is um, is it any wonder that the pro-abortion propaganda machine today will do anything to deny that prenatal life, as the High Court put it exists? At all. And yet we're sort of there in Roe versus Wade, for example, the Supreme Court defined viability as the point at which the fetus, the unborn child in utero, is potentially able to live outside the mother's womb, albeit with artificial aid. Well, the proposed Women's Health Protection Act, supposedly a legislative version of Roe defines uh, viability as the point in a pregnancy at which there is a reasonable likelihood of fetal survival outside the uterus with or without artificial support, end quote. A fetus is a real, separate being, and the mother's womb is where each of us once resided. Fetal survival, in contrast, is an abstract idea, and a uterus is just another organ. Well, the new poll released this week by Americans United for Life further demonstrates the widening gulf between abortion advocates and the American people. Nearly ninety percent of those surveyed, for example, say that unborn children become persons before birth, the largest share saying that this occurs at conception. An equal portion say that unborn children have a right to be protected from violence, and eighty percent say they have a right to be born. Abortion extremists who deny that each of us was alive and human before we were born are practically talking to themselves. So it's encouraging, but the battle lines have been drawn. And once that decision is announced by the U.S. Supreme Court, literally any day now, brace yourselves for what comes next. Speaking of what comes next, we're looking forward to a conversation with... um, in fact, I'm finding find, not finding my show sheet here. Looking forward to my guest. Here he is, Brian Bradley will join me. He is an associate editor for Free Speech America and business at the Media Research Center. We'll talk about censorship online. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, several big tech companies, including Twitter, Facebook, and Amazon, as well as others, are silencing anyone against their woke gender narrative. Well, the Media Research Center's Censor Track Database found one hundred and fifty-six examples of big tech censoring users who oppose the transgender narrative over the last six months. Now, this is more than double the average number of cases involving gender that the Media Research Center found previously in their censor track review from January to um, November of 2021. we well, here to talk with us about that and the implications of this kind of censorship is Brian Bradley, associate editor for Free Speech America and Business at the Media Research Center. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. What's going on?
4: Well, thank you so much, Georgine, for having me. So my colleagues at the Media Research Center researched big tech censorship of transgender posts over the last six and a half months. We found 156 examples of big tech censoring users who oppose the transgender narrative. And as you said, that's about twice the amount that we found when we reviewed big tech's treatment of transgender posts from January to November 2021. So from January to November 2021, Big Tech was censoring at a clip of about twice per week transgender posts, and now they're doing it five times per week. So the number has has more than doubled. Um, And you can look at the examples of this ranging from posts critical of U.S. Assistant Health Secretary Rachel Levine to posts about uh, what's going on with all these drag queen events that are somehow catering to young kids. Um, It's really all across the board. Anything. Anything that questions the left's transgender narrative uh, has been censored by big tech.
2: Yeah, any speech that recognizes the reality of two genders and identified is being identified rather as hate speech. That the science behind this position is of no consequence. Um, their woke position now rules who can be heard and who is silenced. This is incredible. You
4: well, know, yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree, and. Um You know, it's a little bit alarming when a parody site is actually putting out the actual science here. Um, so the, the Babylon B parodied the USA Today's categorization of Rachel Levine as one of its women of the year. Babylon B comes out, says she's uh, er, I'm sorry. Um, he is the man of the year. Um, the, the inclusion on that list spurred a lot more censorship. Uh, of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, Charlie Kirk, The Christian Post, Tucker Carlson, Breitbart Report John Nolte, radio host Mark Davis and Jonathan Gilliam, Federalist editor John Daniel Davidson, and our very own MRC TV. So there's a lot of people who have fallen under the ire of big tech's, big tech's woke narrative simply for supporting biological gender science.
2: Yeah, interestingly enough, in the Babylon Bee. Uh, a parody that you cited, they made the point that he lived his first 50 years as a male, becomes a woman, and now is heralded as the first woman to hold this position. The absurdity of it uh, in a parody site is still unacceptable. It's considered harassing and hateful to make any point that would suggest the prevailing view in the culture today is off. And so voices are just being silenced across the board. Can you give us some other
4: examples? Sure. So one other example that we came across was a popular Twitter account libs of tiktok which merely posts tiktok videos that the liberals post to the platform tweeted what they called a mega drag thread exposing a drag queen storytime at a Massachusetts preschool and a Dallas gay bar's drag kids to pride event among many other things. Um so uh this is another thing that fell under uh Twitter censorship. So, I mean, it's clear which way big tech's going on this. They're supporting leftist indoctrination of children through these actions. And it's clear from our research that they only allow self-congratulatory transgender content to remain on platforms and and never anything that casts it in an honest and true light. It's uh, labeled as hate speech,
2: as bullying and harassment, even if it's just the simple statement of fact. What can be done? Obviously, this is a trend that's increasing, and we're having even LinkedIn, as well as Meta and YouTube, Twitter, that are censoring this kind of accurate, um, scientific-based reference. What can be done, if anything, to remedy this, or at least to communicate with the censors that this is unacceptable?
4: So um, my colleagues here at the Media Research Center have started an alliance. It's called the Free Speech Alliance. Um, there are dozens and dozens of organizations who are a part of this alliance um, who have been censored, conservative organizations, free speech organizations, or anyone who is just bumped up against the ire of big tech simply for stating their opinion. So in the alliance, we share news about the censorship that's taking place. And uh, we, we really talk about the values of free speech and hopefully draw attention to this issue. Another thing is you can always contact your lawmaker and express to them your concerns about what's going on. Section 230 reform um, is something that we have talked about for a long time. Uh, The way it's written now is that big tech essentially has the right to censor and they're somehow given the free speech rights, which totally takes away the user's free speech rights. So, Contact your, your congressman or congresswoman. Look at the Free Speech Alliance website um, and also just speak up. Speak up in your personal life. Uh, um, I know it takes a lot of courage, but but this is what's required right now. I mean, basic human science, basic human norms and, um, you know, you look at this drag queen story time, basic human decency is all under heavy, heavy, serious threat right now. So, um, speak up and, and just simply, uh, simply come at it from a standpoint that this won't stand, and 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 speak actual human biological truths. Um, speak, speak truths about what the left is uh, doing against you or or against your friends, and really just stand on top of the mantle of of honesty.
2: Now these are private organizations. They are not subject to public policy or laws that would prohibit them from censoring in a nation where the First Amendment guarantees the right to free speech. Um, is As a, as a consumer, uh, is that the best way to approach these um, behemoths, Twitter, Meta, YouTube, LinkedIn, um, by just withdrawing from them, by insisting online that uh, free speech is is championed? Uh, How do you see this in terms of the the best way to have influence on those who are making these decisions of calling um, simply statements, simple statements of fact as hateful conduct, hate speech, bullying and harassment?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I hate to say it, but these organizations are so powerful right now that if you leave the platform, I mean, it's, just going to take a lot of people leaving these platforms to um, kind of siphon their power away from them. We saw, we saw, um, th- there was a leak from Project Veritas um, or someone else it might not have been Project Veritas, but essentially it was internal text between different Twitter employees. And they said, Hey, we successfully de Trump. I think we should de-platform libs of TikTok as well. And no one will bat an eye. So, you know, these people kind of just smugly go about their business and uh, they they don't worry about people leaving their platforms or any consequences of what they do. Um, but in order to kind of hedge against them, people can join free speech platforms like Parler and Gab. And there's others out there like Truth Social, former President Trump's platform. This will at least give a hedge against these, you know, humongous kind of hegemonic big tech platforms and let them know that there's another game in town and hopefully just draw attention to the massive disparity that there is in terms of how they treat honest speech, how they treat free speech compared to these alternative platforms.
2: Yeah, it really is a shame that you'd have to shift to a platform that would already embrace the ideas you're likely going to express rather than engage in honest and thoughtful debate in the public square online uh, which seems to be the, the challenge right now. Well, I appreciate uh, that the Media Research Center has made this information available. And can you just tell us uh, in just a moment what Track is? It's the Media Research Center's uh, arm in which you are able to give us this kind of information about how many uh, folks are being censored.
4: Sure. So uh, my colleagues at Media Research Center have tallied around 4,000 cases of big tech censorship over the last several years. CensorTrack is a compendium of all of those different cases. So um, um, some of them, um, not, not everything is published, but we have cataloged them. Um, we have published a, a great number, hundreds of, of these cases, that people can track on the website to stay up to date on everything going on, whether it's an account lock or um, um, a so-called hate speech violation or, you know, uh, someone gets shadow banned, um, things like that. It goes into the different methods of big tech suppression of voices. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it goes into the weeds of how this is all one way. It's all against conservatives Mm -hmm. and hardly ever seems to be against liberals. So this this is um, this is a a a catalog of of different actions that big tech has taken over the years to censor free speech.
2: Yeah. Well, I sure appreciate uh, the work that the Media Research Center does and informing us of what's going on so that we can respond appropriately. Brian Bradley, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you, Georgine. Great to be here.
2: Appreciate it. Again, Brian Bradley is Associate Editor for Free Speech America and Business at the Media Research Center. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we had a start, a pretty cool start for uh, today with the Valley and Portland metro areas, early temperatures in the 40s to low 50s, and partly cloudy. And sunny in the the um, high 70s today. Well, the warm-up begins on Friday. They tell us we're expecting a heat wave with highs in the mid-80s. The weekend heat wave will last three days with the hottest day here on the west side. Being Sunday and the east of the Cascades, rather the hottest weather will be on Monday. Now, Portland will reach into the 90s on Saturday for the first time this year and possibly into the upper 90s on Sunday and into the 90s for the third day on Monday. Sadly, it'll cool off. Well, maybe it's not so sad on the 4th of July. Cooler weather returns uh, to the west side of our state on Tuesday. Beach temperatures with sunny skies could also reach 90 degrees over the weekend, so the beach seems to me to be the place to be with these kinds of hot temperatures. Well, the county's emergency plan focuses on um, early outreach and helping those most vulnerable to the heat here in Multnomah County as they're preparing for summer heat and expanding their cooling centers. Uh, The county's working with the city of Portland to prepare for another summer of potentially dangerous heat. The county recently outlined its updated emergency plan in a news release. They announced it would expand cooling center locations. About one year ago, a heat dome brought triple-digit temperatures to the Pacific Northwest in late June, as you might recall. Well, the county said by the end of summer, heat was responsible for the deaths of 72 people here in Multnomah County. And all but three of those deaths resulted from extreme temperatures during the last week of June. The county plans to release a final report on these deaths within the next week but are warning that temperatures need to be taken seriously. The um, Jenny Carver, who is with the Department of um, County Human Services, says, "...based on our experience last summer and after multiple winter responses, we feel more prepared going into the summer." Uh, The new emergency plan focuses on early outreach, helping those most vulnerable to the heat. Starting this month, the county's health and human services program will begin delivering fans, air conditioning units and portable heat pumps to low income clients unable to purchase the supplies on their own. The Joint Office of Homeless Services is also stockpiling hot weather kits. Uh, That will be distributed by outreach teams, mutual uh, aid groups, and volunteers. The county is also considering using a wireless public emergency alert to warn residents of dangerous heat. Well, the county has identified 18 buildings that can be quickly converted into 24-hour cooling spaces this summer. Last year, the county opened 24-hour cooling centers for the first time. This year, they're prepared for what might happen. Multnomah County uses the uh, NWS heat risk map to make decisions about whether or not to open these cooling centers. When the risk level is at red or magenta, high or very high for much of the population, the county will open the cooling centers. Anytime the county declares a state of emergency, TriMet will shuttle riders to cooling centers, waive fares for those who cannot afford to pay. Uh, Help when it's hot. The latest information on the cooling centers and health and safety can be found online. And dialing 211 will get you the information you need. Call to find a cooling center location and for transportation help. Again, that number is 211. And while you may not need that, if you uh, see someone on the streets who's struggling, Uh, That's the number to call. There are also public alerts. You can sign up to receive health and safety alerts in the Portland-Vancouver area. And Aging and Disability Resource Connections have a 24-hour assistance for older people with disabilities and caregivers. And there's a number for that as well, Uh, 503-988-3646. That's 503-988-3646. Or you can do an online search for Aging and Disability Resources for Extremely Hot Weather. Meanwhile, Portland and Vancouver, well, they're banning Fourth of July fireworks again. Certain fireworks, however, will be allowed in Beaverton and Salem. The city of Gresham still hasn't decided whether to allow fireworks there. With the Fourth of July weekend coming up, it's important to know which cities in the Portland metro area allow fireworks and which ones don't. For example, fireworks are banned in Portland and Vancouver, but certain ones are allowed in Salem and Beaverton. The city of Gresham, as I mentioned, hasn't made its mind up yet. Regardless of where they're banned, dozens of fireworks stands will open across the region this month. The emergency manager for the city of Salem, Greg Walsh, said residents should not only know where they're banned, but which types are legal and which are not. Fireworks that are legal are ones that are sparking and uh, sparklers, rather. And the -the on-the-ground fireworks, anything that leaves the ground is illegal, bottle rockets, Roman candles, and so on. Uh, He also uh, offered some tips on how to set off fireworks safely. And it starts with picking a spot away from any flammable vegetation or materials. So you might want to go to the uh, desert part of the state. Please make sure, he says, that you have some water on hand to put off anything. If it does get out of hand, also please be aware of children. A lot of children get injured when using fireworks. Well, even though fireworks are banned in the city of Vancouver, certain areas of rural Clark County do allow them uh, the owner of Mean Gene Fireworks, Gene Marlowe, said he's expecting a large turnout when they open on the 28th of this month. Last year, as you may know, we had this really hot, dry weather. Uh, we were only allowed to open for a day. Then they shut us down. So most people didn't get a 4th of July last year, at least the fireworks part of it. Law enforcement officials said that they would also like people to save 911 calls for emergencies only and not to nuisance fireworks. So... Uh, if you're annoyed by your neighbor's fireworks, don't call 911. Law enforcement has asked that you keep that line uh, free. So that's what's kind of coming up over the next uh, few days as well as the next uh, week and a half, as 4th, 4th of July is approaching. One other thing I wanted to mention that is not related to what's happening in the Portland, Vancouver area the European Union has formally accepted Ukraine as a candidate to join the EU. Uh, They've not welcomed any new country since 2013. That was when Croatia joined the group. That's partly as a result of the bloc's uh, difficult political and economic environment. But this has started to change, albeit slowly, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. While leaders in the European Union on Thursday formally approved Ukraine's candidate status to join the bloc, the first official step toward full membership, the president of the European Council late Thursday confirmed that the 27 leaders had the had approved EU candidate status for Ukraine and Moldova calling it an historic moment. Today marks a crucial step on our path toward the EU, he added via Twitter. Well, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen also took to Twitter to declare that today is a good day for Europe. That is, of course, if Ukraine survives. She added uh, that the decision strengthens Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia in the face of Russian imperialism. The leaders also officially recognized the European perspective of Georgia, uh, saying it was uh, moving toward candidate status. Well, the actions have reopened a tough and delicate debate within the EU over expansion, as Brussels hasn't yet welcomed any new countries, as mentioned, since 2013 when Croatia joined. Now, if Ukraine doesn't survive, if they don't get sufficient munitions to defend uh, themselves, this may be a moot point, but it at least is a point worth mentioning that they have uh, uh, arrived at candidate status for the European Union. Well we are out of time. Tomorrow on the program we'll take a look at uh, headline news as well as the lighter side of the news and share this week's Christian outlook. Wanna thank James Blind for producing, Sam Maupin for
1: engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.